0: Hey, good morning, all of life. How are we? I am amped this morning. Why am I amped this morning? Because we get to get back into the gospel of Matthew. Um, there are. If you <clears throat> if you're new with us, or we're not gathering with us in the fall, on the connect table right here, this table in the back of the room, there are some Matthew ESV Scripture journals back here, uh, back there. Go ahead and just grab one. If you don't have one right now, hop up. There's like 24, 25 of them. Grab one. That is our gift to you, free of charge, no strings attached. Uh, that uh, there's the words of scripture on one page, and on the next page, it's just a blank page with lines for you to write and 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 take notes and and vandalize it as you want to, uh, which I highly encourage. Um, Matthew Matthew's gospel is in our Bibles because God loves people. That's why this gospel is in our Bibles. It's because God loves His people, and God is not hidden. God is not hidden, but he has revealed himself and he's revealed his ways through the scriptures. And one of the reasons that I and we chose to go through Matthew's gospel because, is because it holds more of Jesus's verbatim teaching than any other book in the Bible. Just the words straight out of his mouth. If you have a red letter Bible, um, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are almost entirely red. Entirely. And what we need in a year of fragmentation and in times of upheaval, we need to hear from the source himself and we need it clear, clear, clear. And so that's what uh, we're um, just on the, the edge of as a church together, getting into Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. Now, like Trevor said, we just came through a series on abiding. It's a little micro series, a reset at the beginning of the year, talking through what does it look like for us to abide with Christ, to plant ourselves in the life source, in the vine, and to trust Him to produce fruit in us. If we're going to grow close to Jesus, if we're going to abide and attach ourselves to him, we need to know what he is all about. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount does for us. It helps to teach us what he is all about. A primary way that we are equipped to abide in him is through a relentless commitment to work Jesus's own values down into our bones. So that's what we're going to be wrestling with over the coming months, something like all the way through the summer, well, at least up to the summer in the Sermon on the Mount in these chapters. We're, going to, we're not going to get myopic, but we are going to spend a significant amount of time in Jesus' teaching. So, we have not been in Matthew's Gospel since, I think, uh, early, well, mid-November. <clears throat> so, it's been some time. Uh, we did a little series on some songs, behind, like Christmas hymns and the theology behind them, and then abiding, and then last week on some pro-life uh, cause and, uh, and a topic, and now this week we're back into Matthew. So, what I want to do for you is I want to reorient us to the Gospel, and I want to reorient us to the first four chapters, and I'm going to do that um, briefly. 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 So here's the big idea of Matthew's gospel. This is what Matthew, Jesus' friend and disciple, is trying to get across to his early first century audience. He is trying to establish Jesus himself as the longed-for Messiah. He's trying to establish Jesus himself as the actual king of heaven. Jesus comes with a message in his mouth saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Jesus is the one who's bringing that message, and he himself is the king of heaven. That's what Matthew in the big picture wants us to see through chapters 1 through 28. He's writing to lifelong Jews. These lifelong Jews, Matthew's audience, they would have been taught that this coming Messiah, this Christ, would be the one who would liberate Israel from their Roman oppressors. But God has something far more surprising in store for them. This Christ would come, and he would liberate, but he wouldn't necessarily liberate them from their Roman oppressors. He would liberate them from a far more sinister enemy, their own sins, which separate them and keep them separated from God. They are an impure people. Humanity is an impure people needing purification if we are going to live in relationship with God. And so God has done this, will do this. Matthew is trying to show his audience he'll do this. He has done this through his son, the powerful and effective work of Jesus Christ, whose very name Jesus or Yeshua means God saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Matthew begins the story in Matthew 1. Just go there, if you would, in your Bibles. I think it's on like 759, or is that right? So page 759 in the Black Bibles around the room. Um, the ESV Scripture Journal, page 1. Um, your app, Fire Up Matthew. It's the first book of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He says right out of the gates, this is the book of the genealogy, or the family tree of Jesus Christ. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. So Matthew begins... This gospel with the family tree, which is establishing Jesus' own legitimacy as a true Jew. Uh, The Hebrews, the Jews, would have been looking for this coming Messiah out of their own lineage. And what Matthew is doing here is showing how Jesus is a descendant, literally, uh, from the line of the very first Hebrew, the very first Jew, a man named Abraham. Matthew also, and in the first line of 1-1 here, he, he also says that Jesus is the son of David. There was a king that came further down the line from Abraham, King David. You've probably heard of him. King David, there was a prophecy given to King David by the prophet Samuel who said from God that another king would come out of your lineage who would establish his kingdom forever. Matthew is trying to show his audience that Jesus is this promised king, the son of David, whose kingdom would have no end. Jesus will tell in in, uh, or I'm sorry, Matthew will tell in verse uh, in chapter two, uh, the miraculous story of Jesus' birth and the events of his early life here, uh, which establishes um, the Father and the Spirit as leveraging all of their resources for not only the birth, but also the preservation and protection of the Son of God, this God, the second member of the Trinity who has actually put on flesh, who has become a man. From Matthew 2 to Matthew 3, Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew 3, he leaves out 25 years of Jesus' life, of his biography. He goes from basically a toddler in the first few years of his life to a 30-something man, a 30-year-old man, who was just beginning his public ministry. And that's where Matthew picks up the story in Matthew chapter 3. He shows, Matthew does, right out of the gates, that Jesus is baptized by the last Old Testament prophet, a man named John the Baptist. And this last Old Testament prophet is affirming and confirming that this one who he is baptizing is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist's legacy, is to affirm Jesus Christ. The Father, in his baptism, the Father baptizes Jesus, or the Father speaks over Jesus audibly with blessing. This is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God, there's people around Jesus as he's getting baptized. They hear this audible voice. They see this the Spirit of God descend in bodily form like a dove and come to rest on Jesus. They're witnesses to this. The Spirit of God drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be um, tried and tempted as he's fasting. And then he comes, he goes toe to toe with Satan himself. He overcomes Satan. He resists him. He comes back by the power of the Spirit into uh, the countryside and into uh, this area of Galilee. He begins to call to himself some disciples, some blue-collar day laborer fishermen who begin to follow him. They leave all that they have, and Jesus comes with a message in his mouth, and the message in his mouth is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your ways. Change your mind about who God is because his kingdom at, is at hand. And the one who is proclaiming this message is the king of heaven. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, right as he's closing out this chapter and he's kind of closing out this section and moving into the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Matthew says. He says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee. This is Ma- uh, Matthew four twenty-three. Jesus went throughout all Galilee <clears throat> teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. So he comes teaching in their synagogues as one who has authority, not as their religious rulers that they're used to. He comes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and he comes healing every disease and affliction. What Matthew is doing here is setting up chapters five through nine. When I've approached Matthew's gospel, I've often, um, throughout the the majority of my life, I have looked at it like a bit of a random, ancient, kind of backwoodsy retelling of Jesus's life. It doesn't seem organized to me the way that I read it on the front end. There's some sections that I can kind of put together, but it feels a bit clunky, and I'm not like tracing a theme throughout it. But what I've come to understand in Matthew's gospel as I've been studying it is that I'm reading it with western eyes. I'm not reading it with eastern eyes. So I haven't had the story of Israel really in view like Matthew had it in view as he's writing this gospel. The the gospel of Matthew is a literary masterpiece and it is blowing my mind. What he does here by saying Jesus comes teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease, he's setting up chapters five through nine. Chapters five through seven are Jesus's teaching and proclamation in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters eight and nine is Jesus healing all kinds of people and doing some Pretty significant miracles, like speaking to the weather and making a massive storm on a huge lake cease. That's what Matthew is doing. Now, as we come into the Sermon on the Mount, here is how Matthew sets it up in Matthew 5, verse 1. So <clears throat> as Jesus is healing, the crowds really begin to take notice, and they begin to gather around him, and he, he's causing a kerfuffle. He's like, that's what's happening. The, peep, the word is out. That there's this healer and, and, and guy on the scene that is unlike anybody we've ever experienced. Matthew 5.1 seeing these crowds, totally aware of what's happening, seeing these crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. There is uh, there is Jewish rabbinical authority in this statement. A rabbi would sit down, and the, his disciples then would know that he's ready to proclaim and to teach. They would gather around him. There is illusion here that Matthew is using, that as Jesus is sitting down on this hillside, and his disciples are coming around him, that there is a special kind of authority upon him, a rabbinical, a rabbi authority on him. And then Matthew says in verse 2, and he opened his mouth, so he begins to teach, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the opening words of his sermon, setting the trajectory. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word in the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount here. Taking note of these crowds Jesus climbs this hillside, he calls these disciples to himself, and he begins to teach. But before Jesus even begins to utter a word here, his original, Matthew's original audience, who Matthew is writing this gospel to, would have already picked up on how, how Matthew is describing the events of Jesus' life alongside the events of Moses' life. Matthew is setting up Jesus as a sort of greater Moses. He's doing something called typology. Typology here is when, um, he'll, he'll, when a person or an event or an institution in Old Testament history prefigures, foreshadows a corresponding but greater reality in the New Testament. So, for, for example, if I were to say to you, man, there is somebody on the scene who is unlike anybody we have ever seen. He's a basketball player. He is insanely quick, tenacious. His work ethic is unlike anything we've ever seen on the court before. His fadeaway jump shot is killer and just puts opponents to death on the regular, when he, when he jumps out of the air to dunk a basketball, it's like he hangs there for a few extra moments and minutes, and he too wears 23. Who are you thinking of? Somebody said it. Michael Jordan. Right. But I just said that there's somebody here greater than him. That's what Matthew is doing. He's paralleling Moses' life with a greater reality here on the scene. So I'll say it like this. Actually, a guy named Patrick Schreiner, he he wrote this. The parallels between Moses' birth and Jesus' birth are unmistakable and they're not coincidental. Both Jesus and Moses are born as helpless children in a doomed home under a foreign power. Both kings seek to kill male Hebrew children who threaten to upset the balance of power in the nation. So Pharaoh was trying to kill Moses. Herod is trying to kill Jesus. Both stories show the persecution and preservation of God's people. Both Moses' family and Jesus' family are told by God to return to the land of Israel from Egypt, and both stories display how God sovereignly preserves his chosen one in the most unlikely of circumstances. Matthew here portrays Herod the Great as an evil and paranoid ruler, much like the Pharaoh. God preserves his redeemers in the midst of persecution because he has greater plans for them. So that's kind of what Matthew is setting up here. spoke more about this uh, when we closed out um, Matthew's gospel. But the, the big idea is this, that Moses is known as the great teacher of Israel, of God's people. And God gave Moses the law that would govern. And this law, so Moses would go up onto the mountain Mount Sinai, and he would receive the law from God and then he would go back to the people of Israel and he would say, thus says the Lord. And he just and he explained this law that would govern both their religious and civil life. But now, like Moses, Jesus goes up, Matthew 5, 1, goes up on the mountain, and he sits down to teach. He's not going up to get the revelation, he's going up as God who is giving the revelation to the people who are listening to him. Does that make sense? In, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, as you read it, you'll, you'll see all of these kinds of phrases that, that, where Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's speaking as God, as he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he is doing here. So we're coming into the Sermon on the Mount. Don't check out on me. A great body of teaching from the king himself. And what the Sermon on the Mount is doing for us is it's giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. It's describing the realities of the kingdom of God. So I want you to ask yourself a question. I'm going to have this up on the screen three different times as we're just I want you to approach the sermon on the mount asking this. When I consider the sermon on the mount, what is uh, what is my reaction to it? Do I find myself drawn into this body of teaching? Do I find myself repulsed in some ways by the sermon on the mount? Do I find myself indifferent to it? Do I find myself discouraged by it? Like what is it that I'm thinking and feeling? As I am reading the Sermon on the Mount, it is uh, uh, so. It, it, I think it says on the screen our, our reaction to the Sermon on the Mount reveals what we are because the, the qualities and the culture within the Sermon on the Mount describe exactly who Jesus is and the values and the culture of his kingdom. It's common to us, it's common for us to come to this body of teaching, this, this group of Jesus' teaching here, the Sermon on the Mount, looking for ways to please God. And so we'll commonly, we'll functionally come in and say, okay, what do you want of me, Lord? What do you want of me? Okay, you want me to love my enemies? Okay, I'll do that. Great. And then we pursue obedience there. We, great. We want to be an obedient people. Absolutely. But... There is a but here when we come into the Sermon on the Mount. If we approach the Sermon on the Mount as a to do list, we quickly find ourselves in the territory of religion, which does not preach gospel at all. It does not, religion does not preach good news. Religion actually preaches bad news, saying that if I obey, therefore God will love me. Religion is us working our way to God through our actions. Gospel is God coming to us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So here's what I mean. If we approach the Sermon on the Mount as a list of to-dos, our self-talk might sound like this as we read through uh, chapter 5. Okay, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, I need to be poor in spirit. I don't feel real poor in spirit. I need to be more poor in spirit. So maybe I'll just change how I think about myself. I talk about myself. I'm going to, I'm going to start calling myself, instead of a saint, I'm going to call myself a sinner, and maybe I'll adopt some language like, I'm going to call myself a wretch, and I'm going to always just kind of hang my head a bit there, if that's what that means, I don't know, but I'm, I'm looking at it, and it appears to mean that, and blessed are those who mourn, so I'm not really mourning right now, so I need to look for some places uh, to mourn, or some ways to mourn, and and then I'll have comfort, and there's meekness here, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I Kind of. I I kind of do. Uh, I don't feel real satisfied, but I want to be satisfied. Um, I'll keep going. Um, Salt and light. I need to be the salt of the earth and like the light of the world. And people are watching me and people are looking at me. And I know that God is watching me and people are looking at me. And so, because of that, I, I should probably get my act together and represent Him well. I don't want to dishonor His name. And Anger. Um, I'm not supposed to be angry or call anybody be angry or call anybody a fool here. Or according to verse 22, I'll be liable to the hell of fire. So I don't quite understand that, but I know I don't like it. And lusting here. I better not notice things about other people that I shouldn't notice. And divorce and oaths. My yes be yes. My no be no. Anything else comes from evil. So I can only say yes or no now. No maybes. Um, retaliation. I really want to get back at them, but that's the Lord's business. I really want to get back at them because they're my enemies, but he tells me to love my enemies. I need to give to the needy too. I like my things. I like my stuff, but I need to, I'm not even aware of who's in need. So I need to go and find them and figure that out. And I need to pray the Lord's Prayer, too. I forget that. I know I need to pray more, and I don't pray a lot, so that helps me with being poor in spirit. But our Father in heaven, I'm supposed to pray like Jesus here, and I don't totally have it memorized, so I need to figure out, I need to get it memorized so that I can actually play it, so that's another thing to do. And fasting, I need to fast. I really like food, but I need to go without food because that pleases God. Laying up treasures in heaven. Do not be anxious, how many of you are anxious right now if this is how we're reading the Sermon on the Mount? Judging others, asking it will be given, the golden rule, the tree and its fruit. I never knew you, uh-oh, I might be doing all this stuff and then Jesus is gonna turn me out at the, at the last day anyway, so now I'm super fearful and I've gotta build my house on the rock because when the storms of life come, I need to make sure that I've got a solid foundation. If that is how we read the Sermon on the Mount, what the heck, right? Like... If, that is how, if we're coming to it as a to-do list, it crushes us. It crushes us. It's, it squeezes the life out of our, 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 our lives, our bodies, and the light right from our eyes. But what if the Sermon on the Mount is not your to-do list? What if it's not? What if we're meant to live like Jesus describes here? We're not excused from it. We're meant to live into this, but from a place of acceptance, not for our acceptance. What if that is the reality that's going on here with the Sermon on the Mount? What if the Sermon on the Mount is not a prescription for who God, who God will find acceptable? What if we've been reading it wrong for a long time? What if it's not a prescription for who he will find acceptable, but rather it's a description of the actual community of those who are already accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ? What if that is what's true here? The prescription for how to be accepted by God is this and this alone. It'll be up on the screen. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, the center of who you are, trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which means that you believe that his sin, his death on the cross for our sin was actually uh, valid, because God has raised this man from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. One believes and is declared innocent. That's what the word justification means. It also can be translated righteous. For with the with the heart one believes and is counted righteous. And with our mouth, it's connecting to what's already happening within our heart. We confess. That it's true, our mind, our heart are connected here. You will be saved. Saved from the wrath of God for impure people. We're no longer unrighteous in God's sight, but righteous. For the scripture says, everyone who believes or trusts in Jesus will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches, His resources on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. What if the Sermon on the Mount is not your to-do list, but is a description of who you are becoming? Present tense. It's not your to-do list. It's a description of who you're becoming through the power at work in you. Know this, that if you have and are trusting Jesus, you're already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, you are blessed. You are fortunate. Why? Because you have a new king. Because you have resources from this king that are new to you and that you can draw on. And you have a new way of life to live into which is modeled after who King Jesus is. And these realities for us are both already and not yet, meaning, yes, this is our new identity. I am blessed. I am a citizen. I am living into many of these things, some granularly, some I can see more growth in my life, but all of them are not yet fully realized or perfected. What this means is that you and I are Christ Jesus' workmanship, but we are works in progress. That is what is true as we come to the Sermon on the Mount. According to a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's written a, a pretty incredible work on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. He says, What is of supreme importance that we must always remember is the Sermon on the Mount is a, descriptor, a, a description of character and not a code of ethics or morals. It is not to be regarded as law, a new kind of Ten Commandments, which some interpreters have said that the Sermon on the Mount is a new kind of Ten Commandments. But it's not a set of rules or regulations either, which are to be carried out by us. But rather, it's a description of what we Christians are meant to be, illustrated in certain particular respects. It's as if our Lord says, because you are what you are, this is how you will face the law and how you will live it. The Sermon on the Mount begins with a series of nine blessings called the Beatitudes, which we read earlier. These Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit, the blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the opening act that set the tone, set the trajectory for the rest of this sermon. So now I'm going to read them again, but before I do, ask yourself... When I consider the Beatitudes, do I find myself drawn to these qualities? So now we're honing in to the first 11 verses in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. When I consider them, am I drawn into these qualities? Or am I repulsed by them, or indifferent to them, or curious about them? Our reaction to the Beatitudes proclaims what we are. And be careful about explaining yourself away, but take your, your knee jerk reaction to these. They describe exactly who Jesus is and, who the, and those he values. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Are you drawn to these qualities? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you consider them, are you drawn in? Are you repulsed? Are you indifferent? What is it? Beatitude, it's a Latin word that means blessing, and it actually comes from a Greek word, makarios, which can mean, um, it can be translated three different ways, blessed, fortunate, or happy. So you could say fortunate are the poor in spirit, fortunate are the meek, fortunate are the merciful. You could even say happy are the poor in spirit, happy are the merciful. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The word blessed here, as we read it as Americans, it can be problematic because of how we use, you know, hashtag blessed. Like how we use that word um, currently. The Beatitudes have often been looked at in, in the same way that we look at the Sermon and the Mount on, in general. And so we'll come to the Beatitudes and we'll say, okay, if I want God's blessing, and I do internally, I really do, you come with an earnest heart, you want God's blessing, then then we read them saying, I need to be all of these things, and immediately there's a kind of weight resting on our shoulders to perform. There's been a lot of teaching in the West that's positioned the Beatitudes as kind of like rungs in a ladder, where you start with being poor in spirit, and then after you conquer that level, then you get to, you know, you you, get, you move on to um, mourning. And if I if I uh, if I'm mourning, then I'm, I'm 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 mourning my own fallen condition, and I'm mourning the fallen condition of the world around me. And then when I conquer that level, then I can move on to uh, meekness, and then eventually I'll move on to all hun- hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll be in that pocket, and then, and then, and then. But Jesus, in this opening description, he's not telling us how to be blessed. It's not what he's doing with the Beatitudes. He's not telling you and I how to be blessed. They're not if-then statements. If you're poor in spirit, then you'll be blessed. He's actually giving a description here of the kinds of people found in his kingdom. That's what's happening with the Beatitudes. He's describing those who are already part of his kingdom, already blessed, already citizens. The word that uh, Jesus is using here for blessing describes a believer who's already in a blessed or a fortunate position. So what it means is that God's favor is already on this person and will, good news, continue to be on this person. You guys know the the comedian Jim Gaffigan? He's like Jim Gaffigan. I was gonna throw a picture of him up on the screen, but I didn't get around to it. Anyways, I'm gonna give you an example here. I want you to picture Jim Gaffigan and his wife is Jeannie. Her name is Jeannie. So Jim and Jeannie, right? If I say blessed and happy or blessed is the happy child of Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan, the idea is that this child is already the child of Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan, and it's in virtue of that relationship that the child is promised an inheritance, and that inheritance is sure to come. So the blessing, the blessing is, hey, I hope this child will, will be blessed as the child of Jim and Jeannie, but rather they're blessed in virtue of who they actually are. And so they don't have to do anything to be the child of Je- Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan. They're already the child of Jim and Jeannie and that is why the child is blessed. That's what Jesus is doing here with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is the, the entryway to the kingdom of God. That's how we that's how we became citizens of the kingdom in the first place. Recognizing our weakness and God's provision, recognizing our need and who He is in our place. Blessed are you for seeing God as he is and yourself as you are. You are already fortunate. And he'll, that, that will continue to kind of reiterate itself throughout our lives as we walk out a process and a lifestyle of repentance. But we are already under the blessing of God here. Here's a principle when reading chapters 5 through 7. So zooming back out to the Sermon on the Mount. This is a principle when you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is something that I want you to be doing. I want you to be listening through the Dwell app and reading and interacting with the Sermon on the Mount. Just let it go. You're not going to get all of it. You're not going to get much of it at times, but just let it go and repeat it. Read it. If you're into that, um, uh, listen to it. If that works better for you, but when you are interacting with it, I want you to do this. I want you to look at the parts of the sermon and apply them, yes, the individual parts and pieces in the chapters, but do, do, do not isolate them from the whole thing. Don't pick pieces out and just focus on those pieces. Keep the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount in your view. As a principle, we move from the general, once we get an understanding of the general, then we can move down into the particulars, which means that we first come to the sermon trying to understand the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a description of our character and not a code of ethics that we must obey for uh, God to be pleased with us. He is already pleased with us in Christ. And it's from that that we then begin to live into it from a place of freedom. We'll move to the individual parts and apply them in light of the whole. Um, I'm going to skip a, a portion here. Um, actually, no, I'm not. Um, here's a problem with the Sermon on the Mount uh, historically. is We'll come to it as a code of ethics and, and if we come to it as a code of ethics, whether it's a, a, a non-Christian person coming to it or just us viewing it and isolating it from the unique power and performance of Jesus, we will come away with a moral code that is sure to do some good, but we will not tap in in any way to the power required to actually live into this description of character. If we isolate it from the finished work of Jesus Christ and from the power of the Holy Spirit, it's just a code of ethics that will eventually crush us. So if we miss that the reality that Matthew begins with this announcement that a king has come, whose whose very name means God saves and whose title says God is with us, And we progress through the story missing that Jesus has great compassion on the neediest people among all the people in the land and gives them incredible compassion and teaches them and calls them to himself. And if we miss that his life eventually will lead to his death on the cross and his resurrection, And the promise that he gives us at the end of Matthew, that he'll be with us forever, if we take the Sermon on the Mount out of that context and just try to live it out, it's going to crush us. It's going to crush us. There's no way to live into the life that the Sermon on the Mount describes without abiding in Christ. It's through our abiding in Christ It's through staying focused on staying with him that we live into this more and more and more. We have to be joined to him and have his spirit dwelling within us. Now, I want to ask a a few, I want to just present a few different ways, four different ways briefly that we can learn from the Beatitudes. So here's what I'm doing this morning. I'm orienting you to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm orienting you to the Beatitudes and then over the next four weeks, after this week, we are going to stay in the Beatitudes and take them two by two. And we're just going to kind of drill down into the particulars, keeping the general in view. That's what's going to be happening. So I want to I just leave you with these four things that you can learn from the Beatitudes. Borrowing significantly here from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Number one, all Christians are to be like those described in the Beatitudes. All Christians are to be described like those in the Beatitudes, not so that we will be blessed, but because we already are blessed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The Beatitudes are a description of what every Christian is meant to be. It is not merely the description of some exceptional Christians, what certain outstanding characters are going to be and can be in this world, but the Beatitudes are his description of every single follower of Jesus, every single Christian. Number two, all Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. Not only are they meant for all Christians, but all Christians are meant to manifest all of the characteristics. So some people aren't meek and others thirsty for righteousness. No, like all of us, we're growing in this list of characteristics. Kind of like the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? In Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, I probably added one or took one away, self-control in there. Like, we're, we're not meant to just, like, hone in on a few, but we're, we're meant by the power of the Spirit at work within us to be growing into all of those attributes. Number three, none of these descriptions in the Beatitudes refers to our natural tendencies So while we might have a natural disposition towards some of the things, each of them, as Jesus means them, is a product of grace here. And they're all a a production of the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. That's what's taking place with these Beatitudes. That's what we can learn. Like there's a special work that God is doing in us to produce this, and we can rest that it is taking place. We have focus on abiding in him and this fruit comes. And then the last one, number four. Each of these describes the difference between Christians and non-Christians. By their fruits, you will know them. Uh, The Christian and the non-Christian are absolutely different in what they fundamentally admire, where they find value and what they love. I want you to ask yourself this. When I consider the Beatitudes, do I find myself drawn to the qualities described? Indifferent, excited, discouraged, seeing some growth, encouraged by that, maybe even repulsed, like, Ugh, I don't want anything to do with mourning. I don't want anything to do with peacemaking. I don't want anything to do with some of this stuff. Here is... The description of these, um, the the Beatitudes, here's who they describe. They describe Jesus Christ himself. The Beatitudes are a description of the character and the quality of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself taking on the form of a servant not equating equal, not counting equality with god a thing to be grasped but he made himself nothing taking the form of a human and becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross it's through jesus' his his i don't know the word i'm looking for right now his 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 putting off uh, some of his divinity and putting putting off the right to lay hold of his divinity, that he was poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus Christ mourned for Israel. John 1, he came to his own and his own rejected him. They loved the darkness more than they loved the light. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He is inheriting his people of the earth. He's the meek one. Meek means strength under control. Strength under control. The God who is man could have called legions of angels to his aid, could have wiped out all of those who were murdering him, and he kept it under control for the purpose of obeying his Father. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He hungered and thirsted to do the will of his Father. I came and told them all that you told me to say. I came and did all that you told me to do. Blessed are the merciful. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Neither was deceit nor sin in his mouth. Though no sin was in him, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Who is Jesus? He is the Prince of Peace. He has come to reconcile God and man. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven who was more persecuted for righteousness' sake than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? The Beatitudes describe the quality of our Lord. And as the Beatitudes describe the quality of our Lord, they describe the qualities and the character of his people. Why? Because through his spirit, by his grace, he is making his people into the image of the Son. He is making us Christ-like. So, take Heart, this is happening in you. You don't have to wring your hands and white-knuckle it into existence. You can rest in the glory of the Son who is your life source and who is with you. Abide, abide, abide. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Your Son is the truth your spirit leads us to truth or your people may we find rest in you in jesus name amen